Good morning, afternoon, or evening. Please delete as appropriate. Hello there, and welcome to this episode number 373 of the Material Podcast. I'm Andy Anatko, unfortunately doing another solo show because Flo is sick. It's not COVID. That is usually the three words that come after the word someone is sick. It's not COVID, but she just has a painfully sore throat and a cold. And so that kind of, <laughs> it would make doing a, a, an hour-long, 90-minute show kind of an exercise in pain, and we don't want that. So I'm very, very happy to give her some time to recuperate. I mean, every friend of mine with kids has to go through these things, and always at the worst possible times, and happens time after time. I'm kind of lucky. I mean, I do, I rarely get colds. Uh, partly because, again, I do live alone, but I think it's specifically because I don't have kids. So it's not just the kids who give you the cold. It's all the kids that the kids play with who give you this big chain letter of disease on a daily basis. Uh, so I, <laughs> I count myself a little bit lucky to avoid that kind of problem. Uh, although, come to think of it, I, I might be signed up for what amounts to like a deferred health payment system. In that, like, I don't spend a decade always getting sick, but during another decade, the last decade of my life, it means that I won't have adult kids to take care of me when, you know, I break a hip or something. So I'm not necessarily advising you follow my path. I'm just saying that there are pluses and minuses to all different lifestyles. Well, since I am doing a solo, you get Andy's story time as opposed to our usual uh, chit-chat at the top of the show. Uh, but I do have something really, really cool to talk about. A little adventure that I have that concerns a pair of Twiggy drives. Now, I'm going to put a photo of one of the shelves in my office into the show notes. Uh, what you're going to see there is a cube of metal and mechanisms and wires and circuit boards, about half the size of a shoebox cut in half, maybe a little bit taller than that. And that is my pair of original Apple Lisa 1 Twiggy drives manufactured in 1982, still screwed into their original mounting frame. Um, I will hope that you haven't heard about Twiggy drives because that's a great story in and of itself. If you have, I think you'll be nodding along and smiling as I tell the story. So don't spoil it for anybody else who might be listening with you. So the Twiggy drive, the, the, uh, what looked like two floppy drives, uh, an individual one was one drive, but one floppy drive, uh, was almost certainly Apple's biggest engineering failure. And it's kind of only fitting that it was a key feature of the Lisa computer, which was also probably Apple's biggest commercial failure. They Apple had been working on the Lisa since 1978. It was released in 1983. And the whole problem of the Twiggy drive, I think, centers from Steve Jobs' obsession with what he referred to as making the whole widget, meaning that he didn't want to go through the route that IBM went through when they built the IBM PC, which is we're going to buy all our CPUs from other places. We're going to buy uh, all of our cards, all of our parts, everything from, from other places. We want to build – we want to design everything ourselves. We want to have the – we're not going to buy an operating system and adapt it for our computer. We want to make sure that we're making everything from start to bottom. And that kind of created a, a company-wide cultural dogma against things that weren't invented by the company, if they could possibly afford it. So they so they needed new – they wanted high-capacity floppy drives for the Lisa. The This was at a time when the Apple II floppy held 140K. Uh, in the On MS-DOS, those disks eventually held 360K. They wanted to do something really, really impressive and have a super high capacity floppy drive that could store over 800 kilobytes on one disk, which is pretty darn amazing in light of those other capacities. 
And so how do you do that? Well, they had a clever idea. I'm putting air quotes around them, which indicates trouble ahead. So their idea was that whereas a normal floppy drive keeps the disk spinning at the same speed, it moves the read-write heads uh, across the surface, track after track after track, uh, always reading at the same speed. Their idea was that if we vary the speed of the disk, depending on where the read-write head is going to be, we can probably get the most data on every track possible. Because at the edge of the disk, the outside edge, it, because it's because it's moving faster than optimal, you can't get as much data on it. So that's how they were going to get that magic, in addition to being able to read and write from both sides at the same time, having a, a double-sided, uh, double-sided drive. So... Uh, it never, ever really worked properly for a bunch of reasons. It was very, very twitchy. The uh, Getting all these things working correctly required a massive amount of processing power. The controller card for it actually had a CPU, same family as the Apple IIe, but more powerful. And that was just the start of the problems. There's a long, long list of... Uh, there had to be... This is why I cite the dogma issue, because if it weren't for... A consideration that buying parts from the outside is a third rail touch that you want to avoid at all costs. At some point, someone would have realized that we are spending most of our time fixing problems that wouldn't exist if we were going with a different kind of solution. Should we be going with this solution? Especially at a time where there were disk drive manufacturers all over the world that could customize exactly what they wanted. As a matter of fact, when uh, when the Macintosh came out, they, Steve even then had to sort of be browbeaten into giving up on the Twiggy drive and simply saying, look, Sony will, will Sony has this new three and a half inch disc. They will even customize it for ex- our exact needs and they're prepared to ship it and manufacture it in the quantities that we need. And finally, when he showed, when he was showed a, uh, secretly secretly created working three and a half inch floppy drive for the Macintosh. He said, okay, I give uncle, you're right. I'm wrong. Let's go with this. Uh, but the, 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 the Twiggy was such a disaster. It, they just shipped it. They knew that it was not working properly. They knew that it was a, a dog, but they put it in all these machines anyway. Uh, and it was, it actually became an issue in a lawsuit filed by shareholders. The shareholders suit asserted that Apple had known these drives were garbage they knew that they were shipping a faulty product, but they still predicted rosy outlooks for the Lisa specifically and Apple in general. And I think they the the, the suit brought like they, they won the suit to, to the tune of like forty million dollars. That was knocked down to four million on appeal, but they had them dead to rights. Now that wasn't Lisa's only problem. The other problem was that the Lisa cost ten thousand dollars at a time when, uh, it, according to inflation, that would have been about thirty thousand dollars worth of buying power today. And there were thirty thousand dollar computers being sold. Excuse me, thirty thousand dollar equivalent computers being sold back in nineteen eighty three, but they were research computers that did a lot, lot more and were a lot, lot more powerful than the Lisa. Uh, I mean, it was. Again, because of the Twiggy drive on top of everything else, it made it everything just garbage slow. And it or it, it didn't feel like a fast computer, even though technically it was a fast computer. It was just uh, hubris. This was this was this was the hammer, God's fist coming down. Um I mean, in the end, it was such a dog that Apple offered all of the Lisa one owners, the very few of them that actually bought one, and a, a totally free upgrade to a Lisa two when they had 
come to Jesus and decided that, yeah, we're going to basically put these new Macintosh three and a half inch Sony drives in the Lisa uh, and just call it a, and just call it a day. So that we, you would you would sh- you would ship it back or send the send your Lisa one with a two Twiggy drives to Apple or an authorized service center and they would take out the faceplate, take out the drives in their cage and then replace it with brand new three and a half inch drives and Bob's your uncle, none's the wiser. Uh, and so what happened to all these Twiggy drives that were pulled out? Well, mostly they were just thrown away. Um, also again, adding, adding insult to considerable injury at some point, Apple was so beaten down by this that they said, look, we've got 3000 unsold leases and in inventory they got an agreement that they could write them off as a loss if they simply buried them in a landfill or ran over them with a bulldozer, which I'm sure that every Twiggy engineer and most original Lisa One owners would have happily done for free. Uh, so that's how I got my set of Lisa Twiggy drives, as a matter of fact. Way back in the 90s, uh, a, a reader of one of my columns got in touch with me and offered me a pair of these pulled uh, Lisa drive Twiggy drives in their original cage. He was some kind of service tech, I think, and it was the way that you would often get uh, old vintage computers uh, in the '90s and, and earlier, and not from too much later. That someone just has this wonderful thing and it's been taking for as far as they're concerned, it's just been taking up space and storage, and they just want to get rid of it. And before they just throw it out, they say, "Oh, I think I can think of someone who might want to have it and would happily pay me the cost of shipping." And of course. When the name Andy Anako pops up, yes, he will definitely pay the cost of shipping for this cool, weird device. Uh, so, yeah, I got it. Hell, I said, hell yeah. And so for almost 30 years, those two Twiggy drives still in their mounting cage were on a shelf in my office. They were serving a purely decorative function, which in the end proved to be the only thing that Twiggy drives were really, really good at. Now, how many of these Twiggy drives even exist anymore? It's hard to say. It might be as low as the low hundreds it certainly again they've only built 10,000 leases to begin with 3,000 of those went into a landfill remaining 7,000 so think about how many people had a lisa and might have turned down uh, the swap out free for free or the ones that uh turned down a later offer which is hey look give us fifteen hundred dollars and we'll take you the lisa one and trade in and send you a brand new macintosh plus and a 20 megabyte hard drive to to boot so you'll have an actual functioning working macintosh as as opposed to this thing that only ever had like seven apps available for it it's real and uh, these are things that would have been thrown away unless you are you like these curiosities either they remained inside a working lisa computer or they were thrown out or they wound up in the hands of idiots like me. Now, it's rare, but there's now there's something important about the value, the monetary value of a scarce item. The fact that a thing is unobtainium, that's not enough to make it valuable. It has to be unobtainium and something that a lot of people really, 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 really want. Now, in the time since I got my drives in the early 1990s, the Lisa one has become a real holy grail item for vintage PC collectors. Like the ultimate grail is an original working Apple one that's at the top of the tree. And uh, wow, they're so in demand and so rare that they routinely fetch mid six figure sums. And I'm talking about in real auction houses. You don't go to eBay for this. You go to Sotheby's. You go to, you go to places that are selling 
uh, Renaissance paintings, and they will also occasionally do a tech collectibles auction, and that's where you get five hundred, six hundred, seven hundred thousand dollars. Some, I think the auction record is closer to a million dollars for one with particular significance. But the Lisa One is a little bit more attainable. Uh, a working Lisa One with a pair of Twiggy drives installed in it easily will sell in the mid five figures. That's again at real auction houses. Uh, a couple of them have even gone for close to six figures, close to uh, close to a million bucks. Uh, excuse me, close to a hundred thousand dollars if it's in exceptional shape. Well, okay. So fast forward. I move. I showed off my Twiggy drives in a podcast or two. Uh, a couple of years ago, uh, it's it's in my office. It is within reach of my microphone here, uh, or when I'm when I'm doing a live stream. So, if it comes up in converse, if it comes up that it would be an interesting thing to talk about on a show, I I grab it and show it off. And sometimes it's just a cool thing I like to talk about. Say, hey, here's something that here's something interesting. And so, consequently, words started to spread amongst a certain community of vintage PC collectors that there's this guy who actually has a set of Twiggy drives. And he isn't doing anything with them, and maybe they could be put into play. And so every now and then, I'd get an email from somebody who was interested in getting them. Now, one of those, actually, one of those real auction houses that I mentioned asked to go in touch and asked if I'd be interested in listing them on one of their upcoming, like, annual, again, technology auctions. Uh, But I wasn't immediately convinced that it'd be worth the amount of work that I'd have to do. I kind of filed that away that, okay, well, maybe someday if I have the free time, I'll investigate this and find out you know, how much rigmarole I'd, I'd have to do in order to actually get this shipped and packaged and photographed and listed and how much it would cost uh, below the, how much they would charge against the, uh, the auction price. All that's, it just seemed like a lot to do. And again, I, I liked my little tchotchke on the, uh, on, on the shelf there, but things really came to a head recently and the, because the perfect buyer emailed me and here's why it was the perfect buyer. Number one, he was local. And that immediately means that I don't have to worry about packing it up. I don't have to worry about insuring it, uh, the, the delivery. I don't have to worry about what happens if it gets lost. It gets lost or stomped on. I don't have to worry if he if the seller if the buyer well <laughs> claims that it got lost or stomped on, which is also a worry. Um, equally good, he operates a really impressive computer history museum out of his tech repair shop in Jamaica Plain, which is just uh, actually part of Boston. And he already owned a Lisa One that was complete, except for those Twiggy drives. I think it's, I believe it started off as one of those upgraded uh, Lisas with the modern, at the time, Mac drives. Uh, But he had found like the right faceplate that has all, has the two cutouts for those big uh, five and a quarter inch uh, Twiggy drives. He had everything he needed except for the actual drives themselves. Uh, And both of those facts, the facts that uh, he was local and he has this museum and, and shop also meant that getting paid was going to be as simple as simply getting a check drawn by a local bank. So I wouldn't have to worry about using PayPal or Venmo or and some sort of PayPal slash Venmo scam that I hadn't heard of before. Again, I'd feel like a real snickerdoodle if I just sort of handed over these drives for <laughs> for a, a check signed by Cornelius T. Ripoff Artist. In retrospect, I should have asked for ID if that had happened. Um, but the other thing was that he was obviously really serious. He wasn't like a lot of these other people who were just fishing to see if I was, you know, like some dope. I, I don't want to make those other people sound like they were trying to rip me off, but it was clearly, 
let's reach out to this person who clearly is just has this thing in his office as a random decoration. Maybe he doesn't know how rare these things are, or maybe he doesn't care about them and he would just as soon be rid of them as, as hold on to them. And maybe for the cost of postage, I can have these super, super rare Lisa drives and either achieve my own Lisa reconstruction dreams or sell them to someone else for a considerable amount of money above uh, the cost of postage. Uh, but no, he was absolutely serious. And some after some back and forth, he put in a very serious and compelling offer. Now, it wasn't just about, about the money, but let's talk about the money. Now, I did take the time to do my research and try to ballpark what the actual value of this pair of Twiggy drives might be. There's plenty of auction history for complete Lisa ones, but there's very little for just a set of Twiggy drives. It's the rarest thing to find if you want to put together a complete Lisa one. But again, it's not as though these are they're they're rare, so they don't show up uh, in a public sort of uh, auction or public sort of listing uh, all the time. Uh, but I imagine uh, by I found some. Uh, pretty intense vintage PC collector boards, uh, and also eBay. Those two sources gave me what I needed in really good sense of kismet. Now, uh, the message boards turned up plenty of people who are lamenting the impossibility of finding Twiggy drives. So I knew that they were super rare. I also knew that there were lots of people who wanted to have a set. Uh, but another message thread of, of only a couple of years ago uh, told me that uh, uh, number one, a pair had sold for over $20,000. I will repeat that. A pair of Twiggy drives, exactly like mine, had sold for over $20,000 just a few years ago. But also, and more significantly, number two, even these serious and desperate collectors agreed that this was an insane amount of money and that they would never buy a pair of Twiggy drives for that amount of money, citing that, hey, look, you can buy an entire Lisa for $40,000, $50,000 if you look around. I mean, I'm not going to that – was, that, was, that was stupid money. So I – <laughs> the idea of it being valued as high as 20 grand was definitely not on my radar, and I super lucked out on eBay. Again, they, they almost never turn up, but someone, as a matter of fact, had recently listed a set of drives just over the summer and initially offered them as, as a buy it now of $26,000. I think this was before the serious buyer contacted me. I just I occasionally have a look out of interesting like vintage tech uh, on eBay. So I, I, so I bookmarked it because I kind of wanted to follow the auction. And almost immediately, like a day later, I got an offer from the seller to buy them for $4,000 less. Uh, and then he released, relisted them after that for even a little less than that. So obviously, yes, that that firmly proves that $20,000 was still an insane amount of money and nobody wanted to touch a pair of Twiggy drives for that price. Uh, you can't be more public than putting put a listing up on eBay. And the fact that they didn't go like immediately means that, yeah, that guy is just out of his tree. So. I knew that uh, I knew that this, these things were valuable, but at least I had like a very, very hard ceiling that I uh, that I couldn't reasonably uh, uh, approach. Um, now I won't reveal exactly how much money I got for the Twiggy drives. Uh, uh, I will say that the offer that I accepted came in at well under what I had calculated as, shall we say, the most that I could reasonably expect to get for them. I I feel as though if I'd put in a certain amount of effort, taken a little bit more risk. Uh, taken, gone through a lot more trouble. Uh, I could have made uh, 20, 30% more than I got for it. But the, the sum that he offered was 
both fair and really just absolutely quite adequate. But more than anything else, what motivated me was the knowledge that these drives could serve a much higher purpose inside this guy's Lisa One in his museum than it had been doing on a shelf in my office. Now, when I visited his shop slash museum this week, I knew that I had been absolutely right. He has an amazing lineup of personal computing history, beginning with the Altair that started it all, the very, very first uh, computer that he called a home, a home computer, or it does things that a computer should do, and it's affordable for an actual consumer. Uh, and all of these computers were on display, each of them in working condition, except for the Lisa one, of course. Um, and it really makes me happy that people, especially kids, can see this stuff working and interact with the software. I I do think that these computers are beautiful static items. Again, I, I held on to these set of Twiggy drives because just as a static item on a shelf, I thought they were beautiful and interesting and significant. But that's not what computers are meant to do. They have to come alive by having software running on them, having operating systems running on them. Uh, and so they can interact with the software. It's not just a picture. It's not even a physical object. It is here is the experience of creating a document on, a, on an original Macintosh. Here is the difference if you are a little bit more into old computers, here is the alarming difference between the Lisa one and the Macintosh. It was, it wasn't just, Hey, they found a way to make a Lisa that was cheaper, uh, only $3,000 and a little bit more practical. No, the Lisa one was my goodness. It was, it was almost, I don't know the word for it. It, it was, it was almost like, grammar school level stuff compared to what uh, they managed to create with the uh, Macintosh only a little bit later than the, than the Lisa one came up. Uh, so, I mean, I wasn't even, I wasn't even in there for five minutes before I pointed at a blue square on a shelf and said, is that a Cosmac VIP? It was a computer that was made in 1977. Now, as a literal child, I had read about it in a book at my local library, which at, even at the time was kind of out of date because I don't think it even talked about Apple II's. Uh, eh, it might have, I don't know. Uh, but and, uh, and so it has this real uh, fascination for me, and it's held that kind of that kind of spot in my imagination ever since. It's uh, it's I, I I've already probably gone on too long as it is, but what I loved about it is that at that time. This was a $250 computer at a time when Apple IIs were going for, I don't know, $1,000, $1,200, $1,300, $1,400. And it was really designed to be uh, to suit the audience that existed at the time, people who are interested in computers and learning how to program and that kind of stuff. It had graphics, a really, really super blocky graphics, but you could write games for it. You could learn how to code an assembly language for it. It was weird looking. Uh, it's still something I would love to own at some point. Uh, and maybe that will happen some sometime soon. Who knows? Uh, but yeah, but that's so that's uh, that it, as a total package. This I was super motivated to sell my Twiggy drives to this guy instead of just sitting on them and waiting and hemming and hawing like that. Now there, there was another reason why uh, I definitely was eager to go for this deal because during the final negotiations he threw in a hell of a sweetener. Again, he operates a computer museum. He's a collector. Which means the collectors sometimes have things that suited a, a fancy at some time, but now is uh, they they're willing to get rid of it. So he threw in a working MSI eighty eighty. Yes. Now this was a mid seventies, I think seventy six, maybe seventy seven, uh, 
clone of that original Altair. It was when Altair made made their first computer, it was a runaway success. They couldn't possibly make them fast enough. And so this company, IMSI, uh, IMS, I think uh, they were called at the time, decided to clone it, make a piece of hardware that uh, could run all the same software and maybe exceeded it in some ways. Who knows? Uh, and the, so that's that's what became sort of like that became like a very very serious computer. Uh, most people know it as yes, the computer that Matthew Broderick used in War Games. It's it is so cool. It is a huge like pale blue metal box fronted with rows of blinking LEDs and colorful big toggle switches, which represented the the input and the output. And for me, this has always been the one that got away. I don't, I don't, I'm not as big a, as a collector as I once was, uh, but there was, I've sort of gone to a very, very refined collection where I just want the ones that I really, really, really want. I'm not a completist in any way. And oh, it was, it, this has always been my white whale because I almost had one when I was like 23, 24, 25 or something. This is like uh, late 80s, early 90s, something like that. But this is the time where an an old MSI was 10 years old. It was just an old computer to a lot of people. And to one person, it was taking up way too much space in their closet. Again, <laughs> people who need more space in their closet was the biggest source of joy to collectors like me and all, all across the world. Uh, and so I don't know how I got in touch with them. It might've been uh, something on, uh, on used uh, a posting on Usenet or something, but the day was set. I was all set to drive three hours from home to pick, to pick it up. Uh, and this, uh, the you know, way back in the eighties, something like that. So the date was set. We we're going to meet up. I was all set to drive three whole hours each way to pick it up. That's all no money. Just get it on my hands. That'll be great. Uh, and the day arrive and the weather was so old Testament story bad that I, even as a foolhardy 20 something, someone who once, <laughs> who once drove like two hours on no sleep to, uh, to be at a store at 9am to buy uh, a, a power book at a really, really cheap price, my first power book, and then drive all the way back again at no sleep plus three hours, and then immediately go to work <laughs> until 6pm as stupid as I was then. And by the way, I've never done anything as stupid as that since he I, I instinctively knew that this was a good way to die. Uh, and unfortunately, the guy he was in such a rush to clear out his office or whatever, that he just chucked in the trash or gave to someone else. He didn't he didn't want to reschedule. Uh, oh, well. But yeah, I'm, I'm going to have a lot of fun with this MSI 8080. I, I can make and run programs on it by just hooking up to a terminal app uh, on any of my other computers. But I really want to write code by manipulating a bank of switches and then nervously eye a panel of LEDs. That that seems like way more fun. Like, well, your definition of fun might differ from mine, of course. And of course, I, I can't end this topic without giving a shout out to that wonderful sl- uh, shop slash museum in Jamaica Plain. If you're in the Boston area, check out the Bite Shop in Jamaica Plain. Their website is at biteshop.io. And by the way, it's in a great little neighborhood too. Lots of restaurants, thrift shops, uh, quirky little stores and bookshops. And it's also near the Arboretum. So really, you could do worse than plan a whole day in that area. It's it's It reminded me of what Boston used to be like in the 90s before uh, things started to gentrify a little bit. It's not as bad as San Francisco, not nearly bad enough. But there are very few neighborhoods 
worth visiting that have multiple thrift shops on, on them. Like Harvard Square back in the 80s, it used to have multiple thrifts, multiple used bookstores, an Army-Navy store, and now it's basically all like banks. <laughs> no thank you. Okay, well, let's get let's get on to the actual show. Uh, we have a good rundown today. I want to talk about the Better Call Saul series finale, which might seem an odd thing after I've spent the last 25 minutes or so talking about something that had nothing to do with Google. But it, this is actually completely on topic for a Google podcast, I'll have you know. Now, some of you will take that to mean, oh, somehow Google screwed up something fierce and Andy is upset about it. If you did think that, well, well spotted. Uh, Android 13 got its official release this week, so let's all try to get super excited about that if we can. Incidentally, this must be Destiny that we're talking about it here on show 373. If you add up those digits, it adds up to 13. And if it weren't for Flo getting sick, I would surmise this episode is here by Divine Ordinance. But Flo did get sick. She's not here. We all wish she was here, and so it's definitely not. Uh, uh, there could be unearthly influence, but it probably didn't come from above. Oh, and uh, this episode does will mark the debut of what I'm certain will become a recurring and highly anticipated feature. Your weekly Has Google's Get the Message campaign succeeded in getting Apple to totally cave on supporting RCS in their Messages app yet update. You have all that to look forward to after this break. Welcome back. Okay, well, I got hooked on the Breaking Bad universe rather late. Uh, oddly, uh, I started watching uh during the mid-season break of the very last episode of the very last series that was set in the breaking bad universe of course better call saul uh yeah i, I won't get into how <laughs> i finally i finally found found better uh, better call saul this late uh but i did so just like uh, in the cad file mysteries uh the 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 detective is actually a medieval monk uh who Unlike most of the other monks in the Abbey who were trained as monks since they were children, he uh, was a crusader and a, and a soldier and a sailor. He didn't become a monk until he was 40. As he used to, and he used to say, when they say, okay, this, this is our brother Cadfile. He came late to the order. And he said, I came when called. So, yes, I, I came to Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad when called. Now, how do, how do I get to watch this? Well, I only pay for basic cable. So I did what I usually do when I want to watch a show as it airs. I bought a season pass on Google Play. Why Google Play and not alternatives? Well, because Apple TV locks you into Apple devices and Amazon's video player is annoying as hell. I have not been to hell, but I have used Amazon's video player and I feel as though I'm ready for whatever the devil wants to send me. Uh, although I will say that the Android TV app for, uh, Amazon's video player has got recently gotten better, but oh my God, like what intern as a intro programming project decided to write the first one? Yikes. Well, now Google play episodes tend to drop a few hours after the episode premieres on the West coast. It's an AMC, uh, AMC channel show. So usually that will happen by three or four in the morning, uh, here in the East coast. Okay, so the series finale of Better Call, Better Call Saul, it aired on Monday night. And mind you, this is not a sitcom. It's not like the show got canceled midway through a random season and the writers barely had time to accommodate a super awkward scene and some sort of excuse for the entire cast to squeeze into the same set for an impromptu retirement or birthday party, whatever. Any excuse to give everybody one last bit on camera. 
No, this is an emotionally gripping, tightly plotted drama where normal people who started watching the series at a reasonable point will finally find out after six seasons the final fate of this guy they have been following probably since the Breaking Bad era. So there's a lot of investment in this. Uh, and even for someone who had only seen like season six, I had definitely I definitely stayed up a couple hours late on Monday night to watch it as soon as I could. I kept refreshing my Google Play uh, my YouTube app to see when it would actually start appearing. So no episode 13 appeared at 3 a.m. or 4 a.m., nor at 10 a.m. on Tuesday, which is when I woke up. All through Tuesday, nothing. As of 1.30 a.m. today, now Wednesday night, no update. Uh, except for a little animated avatar of Sundar Pichai laughing and flipping me the bird. Okay, not quite, but uh, that at least would have been an update. So it would have been better than absolutely nothing. I mean, are they kidding? Now, I, I'd long given up on it ever appearing uh, before now. I mean, Tuesday night, I bought the final episode. Actually, Tuesday afternoon, I bought the final episode from Apple TV. Now, of course, that meant that I had to watch it on my iPad Pro because the Apple TV app doesn't work with any of my TV streaming boxes, but at least they had the damn show. And actually, the iPad Pro is actually the highest quality screen in my house. So eh, maybe it wasn't so bad after all. But yeah, I mean, it just sucks that I had to buy another copy of an episode that I'd already paid for by buying the complete season six as it was supposed to appear from Google Play. But the alternative to buying that episode on Apple TV was to stay off the Internet entirely for the duration of this crisis uh, or risk almost certainly coming across spoilers for the finale's spectacular payoffs, whatever they were going to be. I mean, I was already flirting with danger. Like every time I woke my phone, there'd be a Google News notification notification on my lock screen was something fortunately safe about the show, but the clock was definitely ticking. That was definitely not going to last. I mean, I remember what uh, I had uh, Rogue One, the, the Star Wars, the Star Wars movie that got spoiled for me by a headline that read something like, here's how special effects pulled off that stunning reveal. And it was accompanied by a picture of said reveal. You know, they wanted, it was like two or three, I was like maybe less than a week after the movie uh, dropped in theaters and it was a hot news item. So they're trying to grab views in the headlines while the movie was a top story. I, 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 that might sound odd, but maybe I am odd about this sort of thing. I acknowledge that. But there are times where I truly want to come into a TV show or a movie with a 100% clean slate. And I don't want to rely on a writer or editor's judgment on what's harmless enough not to qualify as a spoiler. I mean, this thing you could say that about Rogue One, you could say that it was just a simple thing that, and I don't know, maybe you would have found out about it almost immediately, but it was the sort of thing that I absolutely don't want to see before I see a movie. And actually, I still haven't seen Rogue One because of this spoiler. It. Uh, if I didn't know anything about it, I would have given it uh, a try. I would have given it, uh, I, I, would, I, would, I would have tried it at least. But the spoiler was, I don't know if you call it a trope, but it was something that I absolutely hate to see in a movie. And I didn't want my heart broken by a Star Wars movie that had something that I really, really hated and that I really, really wish I hadn't seen. So it's the same reason why I haven't seen episode nine yet either. But I digress. Anyway, so it, it it all worked out. I watched the Better Call Saul finale spoiler-free, and I don't want to flaunt my standard of living or anything, but the three extra bucks I spent on Apple TV didn't really dent my finances at all. It didn't hurt that I had uh, Twiggy Drive money in my pocket at the time, but still, at three bucks, I can handle three bucks. 
Uh, but still, as a journalist and as the host of this Google podcast, I am left with a pertinent and important ask question. That question is this. What the f***, Google Play? Well, as a journalist, I wanted to perform my due diligence, so I posted a variant of this question to Google Play's helpline via email. I have yet to receive a response, which suggests that maybe I should have gone with my first coarser phrasing of that same question. I mean, this is the number one most popular item this week on the Google Play TV store. How could this have happened? Now, I was kidding about getting the finger from Sundar Pichai over this, but I know it's not personal. There are plenty of threads about this problem on the Better Call Saul subreddit from other Google Play subscribers. And support was no better for this user than it was for me. I'm going to quote him here. I called Google support and they kept trying to troubleshoot my phone. I told them that the episode wasn't appearing on any of my devices in my home, but they kept on trying to troubleshoot my devices. Google support offered no explanation or accepted any fault. They passed their issue to their quote quality unquote team. This is some bull. Well, anyway, so that's I mean, <laughs> being denied probably the most important episode of a very, very critically acclaimed and very much on the zeitgeist television show. That's not even my only complaint or my newest complaint about Google play videos. I mean, it's, how did they put this system together? There, there's no consistency regarding where to find the stuff I've purchased. I mean, I've been, I've been fetching these episodes once a week for the past uh, month and a half, two months or whatever. And I never get it right the first time. So I open YouTube, the the website, and there's no sign of any, uh, per, any purchase play store content, even on the, the mobile app. Okay, so maybe it's in, uh, quote, li- the, the library tab. So I click on that. It's, 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 I have a library of purchased stuff, maybe. It's, no, there's still nothing that says purchased content or similar to that. <sighs> okay, not anything that looks likely in the entire sidebar. Okay, well, maybe I'll click on the hamburger menu to reveal, like, a new menu. There's something called your videos. No, it turns out that that's stuff that I've created and posted. How about your movies? Okay, it's not a movie, but I'm going to click on it anyway, even though that doesn't really make sense. I'm looking for a TV show. Maybe they mean purchased movies, but that would be ridiculous. And But it did take me to a page that is entitled Movies and Shows. So the menu item is called Movies Only. You have to get into the Movies menu to get Movies and Shows. That's strike one. Strike two is, you probably twitched the fact that the word your in this interface means two different things in two different menu items that appear sequentially. There's your as in things that you've created, and then there's your as in things that you've purchased. That's nuts. Strike three is that everything is different in the YouTube app. And I don't even want to talk about what happens inside the uh, inside the Android TV app, which is where I typically watch this stuff. So, yeah, this is just a total mess. The episode never showed up. The place to play what's there is inconsistent from app to app. And the web player UI isn't even consistent from one one menu item to the other. Yeah, I'm not I'm not disposed towards buying another series from Google Play ever again. I mean, okay, so you might ask, why not just subscribe to AMC Plus? That is a streaming service from the AMC channel. Well, it is seven bucks a month, and it wouldn't have cost me less than buying this whole season. 
uh, because buying the whole season, I would have gotten all 13 episodes. Actually, I think that if I had remembered to cancel my subscription during the mid-season hiatus, I still don't think it would have cost less than uh, buying a season pass. I wouldn't also, I wouldn't have season six in my permanent library or I don't have season six in my permanent library. Do I have, but I would, I would, at least I have 12 thirteenths of it. Now I definitely want to watch the six and a half seasons of better call Saul that I missed out on. Uh, and then I want to watch breaking bad. Well, but both of those are on Netflix. So I'm covered. Uh, and you know, in a bit of kismet, I mentioned that that neighborhood where I sold my Twiggy drives had a bunch of thrift stores in there. Well, one of those thrifts had a huge DVD and Blu-ray department uh, for basically cheap as free. So I got two seasons of Breaking Bad for three bucks each. Uh, yeah, I know it's a, I could I can get them for watch them for free on Netflix, but of course I bought them because my rule for music and TV shows and music is that if I love them, I want to own them for real and have them on my media server forever. I was very pleased and surprised that both series were uh, both uh, Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul uh, are complete on Netflix. But who knows how long that's going to last? Uh, I probably get a better get on my horse and 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 set up a consistent a uh, consistent schedule of watching these things before that happens. But you know, every time any time that I come across a full season of something that I like, and it's three bucks, that's a lot of hours of entertainment for a very small amount of money. Who would not buy that stuff? Well, anyway, uh, finally, before we take a break and then start finally talking about Android 13, uh, Google Play Store, a message for you. You are a stupid, ugly face, and your face is stupid and ugly. Okay, I feel a lot better now. Thank you very much. We'll be back after this. Yes, it's Android 13 time, and I'm only just now realizing that I could definitely have exploited this excuse to get another one of those cakes that I don't get to have unless I make up an excuse to go to the bakery and get a birthday cake or something. Oh, well, water under the bridge. Uh, the the rollout finally of the final edition, the actual, actual re- release edition started on Monday. As expected, Google Pixel phones are the first and so far the only phones to receive the update. Uh, it, you know, it really should be easier to get these updates. Even as a Pixel owner, like all week long, I've been tapping the check for updates button in the uh, system settings. Uh, then I read the read the phrase, your system is up to date. And then I tell my Pixel 6, you're a lying liar whose lying mouth is filled with lies. And they they, they don't even have the decency to look ashamed. It just, it just looks like a phone. I just, I don't get that. Anyway, uh, I really think there ought to be a, let's call it an annoying little child uh, alternative to the usual stage rollout of Android updates. I mean, I know that if I wait, eventually it'll arrive on my phone. It'll, I'll, I'll, get, I'll get the magic button <laughs> that will actually download and install the thing. But maybe I just want to have it now, 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 now. Uh, I, I feel like if I ask system update to check over and over and over and over again without pause, around the 10th or 12th time I do it, Google should just give me the update because I really wouldn't do that if I weren't either a savvy enough to know that, hey, there's this alternative way to download the uh, the system update immediately or be really, really super stressed out and nervous and getting a little bit freaky about wanting to have this right now. Now, in either case, that user should not have to wait amongst the main throng who maybe isn't, isn't aware or doesn't care. Um, the, the verge does report a successful work workaround. If you want to get the Android 13 update immediately, uh, just join the Android 13 public beta program. Uh, it's simple. And the final release version will show up in system update right away. Uh, then 
install it, uh, get, complete the upgrade, and then leave the beta program immediately. And Bob's your uncle. Uh, you won't. It won't be the, the last beta. It will be the actual final release version. The uh, the Verge doesn't mention something that's actually kind of important. If you're in still enrolled in the beta program after the next beta drops, you'll be stuck. You'll be still. It will automatically apply. I think the you'll automatically download and install uh, the next beta and it'll replace uh, the. 13.0 that you already got on there so be make sure that you unenroll as soon as you've updated to android 13's official release uh now what's new uh it's not it's not a titanic tectonic uh, fundamental shift in reality that you're, you're kind of hoping for every time that there's a major uh, annual update to uh, to android uh michelle raman uh, blogging on esper.io uh, has the most viable list of changes, I think. It's like 60 long, and it's mostly the good stuff. Uh, and there'll be a link in the show notes, but esper.io and go to the blog and you'll find it there. So, uh, but but I've kind of summarized things that I've thought were kind of interesting. Uh, there's some small visual changes to Material U, the the revolution to the new uh, graphical user interface that, uh, that uh, Google came up with and uh, released in Android 12. Again, nothing that will make things unfamiliar to you, but it looks like they've just done – they find little spots to refine the experience, like uh, the media player and the media controls. Like the, the, there's a squiggly line now if it's playing, and the, the the layout of things is a little bit different. Nothing that will be disruptive. If you were to do a side-by-side comparison, you would say, hey, wow, that is kind of cooler looking. But it is the sort of thing where it's like if if Android 13 cost you $25, you'd say that was worth at least 5 bucks of that upgrade. Thank God that I, I bought the – I bought the boxed version of it with the spiral bound manual and everything. Um, but there are a bunch of little new features that are, that are pretty nice. Um, and again, I'm going to give you a little rundown here. Now in the audio department, uh, Android 13 supports Bluetooth LE. So Bluetooth low energy devices are going to be fully supported. So now you'll have speakers and headphones that last a lot longer. If you buy new hardware, uh, it'll also support built-in spatial audio with head tracking. So spatial audio will work with every pair of headphones you plug into their head tracking, meaning that if you turn your head now, the, the thing that used to be, uh, that used to be, uh, right in front of you will now sound as those coming out of your, your out, off to your left somewhere. Uh, but you'll have to have special, headphones that actually can provide that data of where you're turning your head for that to work. Uh, fast pair is now built in, so it should be a lot easier to pair a Bluetooth device. Again, assuming that the hardware supports it. Um, subtle thing, the Bluetooth stack is now a project mainline module. That means that like other project mainline modules, it can be updated, fixed, security holes patched through a Google Play Store update without having to go through an entire OS update. So that means that if you don't have a Pixel phone, if you're used to waiting for Samsung or whoever your provider is to uh, provide a, a, an update that uh, Google has pushed out. You won't have to worry, or won't worry about that. Google will put it on the Play Store. You will get it through the Play Store and you'll be protected or you'll, your bugs will be fixed. Very nice. A lot of changes to the quick settings menu. That's the thing that comes down when you uh, when you stroke down from the top of the screen. There is now a quick settings tile slash button that uh, activates a QR scanner. That's not... It's, uh, it took. I'm glad that there's something explicit there now because it took me a while to twig to the fact that I have to open the camera app to read a QR code because it doesn't seem like it. It makes some kind of a sense, kind kind of sense, but 
uh, yeah, I had to actually figure that out. So you can either tap the camera, the, the camera button, or uh, or you can now access it through quick settings. That makes sense. Uh, there is also a new quick settings tile that will enable or disable reachability. Uh, that's the one-handed mode. So if you're again fumbling with packages, you can easily s- swipe down, tap a button on the quick settings tile, and now you're in this one-handed mode. Uh, so it used to be you'd have to go through system settings to activate that. It's nice that you can now do that sort of on demand. Uh, the power and settings buttons of quick settings have been moved to the bottom right of the quick settings panel. So again, easier to reach one handed. Uh, you can also pause running apps in quick settings. So it's a, it's a lot more, uh, a lot more little features in there. Now, I don't know if, do you use quick tap? This is that really cool feature where if you just tap on the back of a phone that supports this, it will act, it will do a function. Uh, it's really powerful and useful. Uh, it uses by default, at least on my pixel phone, it's set to assistant. That's how I activate the Google assistant. I don't have it always listening for the catchphrase, but I just pick it up, tap it with my fingernail for best results uh, on the back twice really quick. And so I'm so now I'm just talking to the Google assistant. No need to say, Hey Guillermo or everything like that. You can also have it launch an app or open notifications There are lots of good stuff. So go, go to settings, uh, slash system slash gestures, uh, to, uh, to, Check out what you can do, and now you can turn on the flashlight with uh, with Quick Tap. So good. It's I I think more people should know about it. I didn't even know that uh, Quick Tap was a real feature. I thought it was just oh, here's an alternative way of activating the assistant, just like double tapping the power button is a way to activate the camera. No, it's you can actually customize it. It's really really cool. The clipboard gets a gets some really cool new uh, new looks and new features. Um, now when you copy something to the clipboard. Uh, a little dingus uh, will appear in the lower left-hand corner of the screen, uh, similar to what happens when you take a screenshot. You will briefly see like a thumbnail of what you just copied to the clipboard. And if you tap on it, you can edit the contents of the clipboard before you paste it someplace. That's really cool. There's also a really cool security feature they've added to the clipboard. Uh, the clipboard automatically wipes itself after an hour, so it's way more secure. So if you you did used it to copy an address, copy an account number, any personal information. Uh, there's a lot of malware that keeps it on the clipboard because they know that we don't want to remember a password, but we're just going to copy it from one place, paste it into another. So it'll make things a little bit safer there. Uh, the battery menu will uh, now has a higher battery usage app list. So you can actually see here's the apps that are actually draining the battery the most. You can force quit the ones uh, that are misbehaving or if you're just really super, super, super low on battery. The camera API supports HDR video capture. Cool. Uh, there have been enhancements to vibration. Uh, the you know little thumper there. The uh, note you can have a notification vibrate stronger or more gently for specific apps. So if you want to, uh, if you want a message, an incoming text message to sound more urgent than, oh by the way, there's uh, your Uber is here or whatever. Uh, you can basically have specific settings for specific apps. You there's also an option so that a notification so that you can have this notification vibrate first silently and then add an audio alert if you don't respond to the vibration really natural feature that should have been hit there for a long time earlier. Uh, You can now set language settings per app, not uh, just uh, across the entire device. So like if you have WeChat, it's probably to speak to relatives or friends in China. So you can have it so that the system settings of the, of the phone are Chinese when you're in WeChat, but they're in English or any other language in any other lab. And you can set that app for app for app. Um, one thing that I'm really, really grateful for, uh, 
app-specific notification control, you know, where you say, okay, I do not want this video app to warrant to, to alert me that, hey, there's a new music video from this artist I never heard from and disrupt my sleep, disrupt, <laughs> disrupt at all. Uh, now, uh, when you install the app, you can actually make those settings like after, right immediately during the installation process. Just like, uh, just like when you install a new app, if it needs permission for location, permission for the camera, the microphone, you can enable or disable those permissions like when you install. So now when you install a new app, you can basically tell it to not bother you before the first time it starts bothering you, which is kind of rage inducing sometimes when you, uh, I've, there've been times where I installed something because I needed to do this one task. Okay. That's handy. That's great. And then I found out like the next day that it alerts you like every 20 minutes for stupid things. It doesn't need to alert you about. And it's easy to dismiss those things, but it'd be easier to dismiss them before they get you upset. Um, obviously this, as usual, there's going to be, there are a lot more security features, a lot cooler security features. Uh, some highlights here. Uh, the, I think the most important one is that security and privacy features for Android, they've all been rounded up into a single settings panel instead of being scattered amongst all kinds of different sub panels like screen lock, find my device, uh, Google account security. Those are all on the same page as long as, and when you, when you, uh, when you, uh, activate when you when you open this page at the very top it will actually just say okay everything looks good and then you can drill down and get more data get more details but it says okay the last time we did a check of what your settings are uh, and uh, the security of your apps everything was good so don't there there would be an alert there if it says yeah there's an active there's an active attack on your phone it looks to be some let's see real bad dudes so you might want to hide for a little while haven't seen that alert yet but i'm sure it's coming now, this one is super interesting. There is uh, OS level, kernel level support for virtualization. This is uh, for running virtual machines. People who use desktops are probably very used to that, where uh, like if you're administrating Windows, for instance, a Windows desktop, you don't necessarily, you're not, you're not running things from the copy of Windows that's installed on your actual PC. You will have multiple virtual Windows machines uh, running. There's separate little files that have, it might have the very latest version of Windows 11, might, one might be Windows 10. You might have if you're an administrator, three different versions, depending on whether uh, this is the installation that would be used by someone in sales, someone in marketing, uh, C-suite offices, uh, customers, whatever. Uh, and so it allows you to not have, not have to reinstall and reboot stuff. Um, now, so they're, but they're putting virtualization on uh, on Android 13. It's available to every single app as part of part of the OS. Uh, it's using a standard Linux, Linux virtual machine uh, based on KVM, which is well understood, well supported, uh, and very, very popular, very, very safe. Um, and like I said, any app that needs uh, a VM can use it. So it's not restricted in that way. And clever people have used, at least on the beta, to get... Uh, get uh, Pixel 6s to run Linux and even Windows 11. Uh, <laughs> that's very interesting, isn't it? Like, I've always had a certain amount of respect for Samsung's DeX, where you plug the Samsung phone into a, into a display, and now you get a desktop-like experience. Uh, it's not necessarily Android on the desktop, but it's a desktop-ish sort of thing. But being able to connect... Uh, like an Android 13 phone to a display, a keyboard or mouse, and then suddenly have a full featured Linux desktop, not this sort of half baked Samsung desk, like a real Linux desktop or even Windows. Eh, Windows is probably pushing it, but Linux, I think, is probably doable. That is deliciously enticing. The imagination reels. Uh, okay, so why am I putting this feature under the category of security instead of the list of cool new features? 
because well it's because although yes any app can use android 13's kvm it seems as though google really didn't put it in there to make it easier to run virtual machines on android phones in fact if you look at the rundown of how those linux and windows virtual machines got running on uh, on those uh, pixel sixes it only worked after these people performed a lot of jedi mind tricks on this hardware not nothing like nothing like a uh, taking advantage of security weaknesses to whatever 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 but no it's not like hey double click on this and you're running windows it's you it's 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 the it's a bar bet sort of way of doing it where if you're if someone bet you twenty dollars you can't get windows 11 running on a pixel six you would win that bar bet but it's not as so simple that you would recommend that any one else does that so uh, so why is it on there well uh, google looks like they want to uh, use virtual machines to enhance security i think not in this release but maybe in the future it's a little bit cagey about that um because uh, it would virtual machines would give the operating system the ability to run apps in safe separate virtual machines tightly sandboxed from each other instead of letting an app throw mud at other apps or os services so uh, let's wait and see. We'll see what this is about. But I can't wait to see if somebody actually decides to, hey, you know what? Not only did we get Linux running in a way that consumers and regular users can really appreciate, but we also built a, a, a custom version of Debian specifically for running on Android phones inside a virtual machine. That would be super, super awesome. Okay, well, there's a continuing on security stuff. There's a new photo picker that has a new visual interface, but the big deal is that it gives finer grained access limitations for apps so instead of telling the app that okay yes you can have access to all my photos you can just say hey look you can only see this one album so that's that's better than letting people go hog wild um similarly app permissions for media files are now also fine-grained so it used to be there weren't separate permissions for sound photos and video now there are so you can again if 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 an app has absolutely no business accessing photos and video you can just say yeah you can only access sound that's fine now here's something a little bit subtle but it seems really important um there is a a, a mode of attack that a lot of malware uses to gain control of a phone and make it do things that the user would absolutely not appreciate. Um, there is, it does this by taking advantage of a set of APIs for accessibility. They're called accessibility and notification listeners. The, the This API allows people with different needs to use tools that will do things like read the contents of the screen, items on the screen allowed, or put them on a much, much bigger display so that if you're, uh, have, uh, if you're visually impaired, you can read the screen yourself. Uh, it, not only can it read all the stuff that's being displayed on the screen, uh, but these APIs can also uh, operate the user interface, uh, do key presses. So it can pr- press individual buttons. It can do keystrokes, all that kind of stuff. So you can imagine how this stuff can be abused by a, a malicious app. Uh, it can easily just keep an eye on the screen. And every time it sees something on the screen that looks like a bank account number or something interesting in private, it can grab that and then do what it wants with it. It can, after it look, gets a list of, uh, of, uh, apps that are installed on a device if it finds a banking app it can operate the banking app and push all the buttons so that it does transfers outside of uh, outside of that person's account into someplace overseas uh, it's it could go to the play store it could go to the play store and download and install other infected apps just terrible terrible stuff it's been abused widely and google has been 
attacking this problem in previous releases, but now they've gone and done something a lot more serious, probably the most serious thing they've done, uh, that if a app tries to use that API and it's been, hasn't been installed through some sort of an app store, yes, Google play, but also third-party app stores. If it hasn't been signed as, Hey, this came from an app store. Uh, so if you're trying to install it as an APK file, if you, install it the way that a lot of this, this, these malicious apps are installed by there's a link that comes through a message or through an email or on a web browser. It simply will not allow that app to access those APIs at all. Uh, now there's a way around it. If it's needed, uh, like developers can, who are not malicious people, uh, if they actually need to ha- distribute an app as an APK or through a website or something, uh, and they need to use these APIs, they can petition Google for a certain, kind of a golden ticket that will get it through this new security against uh, APKs that use those, these APIs. But we'll come to think of it, that golden ticket, that's probably not the right movie reference. A better one would probably be the, the fifth elements multipass, or maybe the letters of transit from Casablanca. Okay. Well, whatever. Um, and now it can also control and limit background access to body sensors, just like it can control background access to location and other stuff. Like, because, yeah, if it can find out what your what your temperature is, find out what your, I don't know, uh, I, I'm sure I'm sure that it's a, it has something to do with like malicious people who want to fingerprint stuff, or maybe just on the basis of, hey, look, if there's personal data on this phone, I want to find a way to steal it and monetize it some way. There, these people are scum. So yes, any way you can shut them down and make their day more difficult, that's a good stuff. So overall. Uh, Android 13, not a humdinger for sure, but there are enough little improvements and enough improvements to security that will make you glad that you got it. Or in my case, even more bitter and angry that I haven't got it. Oh, well. Uh, And of course, remember that Project Mainline, which we mentioned before in regards to Bluetooth, that does mean that we can see other new features appear over the course of the year as Google pushes those updates uh, and and updates to Google apps, like the camera app, through the Play Store. So you don't necessarily have to wait for Samsung to build a new version of of Android because they've made a security fix or uh, or a new feature. This is – it will just automatically grab it through the Play Store. You're good. that's uh, one of the few advantages <laughs> of I don't want to say few advantages that's prejudicial but that's that's one it's it's always a bummer that you can't count on getting updates immediately just like you can as with uh, iPhones you as soon as it's released day and date you can get it and every iPhone will get it at the same time cuz it's all the same phone but at least it's good but at least we don't have to wait an entire year for a new version of the camera app or a new night sight feature because they can simply update the camera app separately through the Play Store eh. Little, little, little pleasures, little, uh, little treasures. Uh, although now I'm kind of regretting that I said the word Play Store because I'm just making me upset again. Yeah, I can, I can feel the, the, the red mist coming in. So maybe we should just wrap up the show on that note. Well, we're not going to end the show before we give, we've been building up to this all, all, all episode long. Okay. I, I, you're on tenterhooks. You're waiting for it. If we had a budget, we'd have theme music for this. Maybe when the, maybe when this new feature snowballs and wins the hearts and minds and consciences of the entire world, the podcasting world, and drives us above more popular but less worthy podcasts, maybe uh, we could uh, – I'm so excited about this. I, I, I'm not as excited as you are, but okay. <clears throat> and now, here's your weekly 
Has Google's Get the Message campaign succeeded in getting Apple to totally cave on supporting RCS in their Messages app yet? Update. No. Oh my god. I've, uh, I'm kind of flushed with excitement here. Oh god. Ten, you know, ten years from now, I'm sure you're all going to remember exactly where you were. When you heard the very first weekly material podcast, has Google's Get the Message campaign succeeded in getting Apple to totally cave on supporting RCS in their Messages app yet? Update. In fact, I think we've all grown a little closer to each other for having had this shared experience, this shared cultural touchstone. God, podcasting is just so beautiful sometimes, isn't it? Well, okay, so that does it for this week. Flo will be back next week and in fine voice, I'm sure. Uh, please head to flowrights.tech to see all of Flo's latest articles for Gizmodo. Uh, and you can find her on Twitter and Instagram at OhThatFlow. As for me, spell my last name correctly to see my Instagram and Twitter. And go to WGBHnews.org to hear or watch my regular tech news segments on Boston Public Radio. As always, you can help support our show and everything else on the Relay.fm network by becoming a member. Head over to Relay.fm slash material to sign up and gain access to special members-only episodes produced by all of Relay's contributors, including us. Thanks so much for listening this week. We hope you come back again next week. Until then, please have a happy and healthy seven days. So long.